And we're really on the second half of a sermon that began last week as we think about Paul's great struggle he talks about in verse 1, which is praying for this church and looking and trying to identify the things that he's struggling for and then asking the questions, what are the things that we need to be struggling for in our own prayers? What are some things that we need to be working on for ourselves? So Colossians chapter 2 in verse 1, if you don't have a, a Bible in front of you, there's a pew Bible. And that's on page 983. So let's stand together as we read Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we'll continue to verse 8. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. Uh, The prophet Hosea, the Old Testament prophet in the series of 12 minor prophets, was given the unenviable task of preaching to a country in spiritual decline. How would you like to have that role? You're going to be the preacher uh, for several years in a country that's going to just keep going down. And during your time in the pulpit, it's going to be enslaved by another country. And so you have to preach to these people, and the reason they're going to be enslaved is because of their own sin. And I want you, Hosea, to keep standing up and preaching to these people the truth. And in his congregation, people still attended worship. It wasn't that they weren't regularly coming or attending. It's just that they're their religion was just a form. It wasn't really uh, any, anything of substance. It was hollow. And their participation was really just this thin shell covering a massive self-absorption. They would come into the congregation. They would sort of do the things. But it just this very thin veneer. And underneath, they were completely self-absorbed. And one practice that Hosea regularly preached against was their self-centered prayers. So here, of all the places not to be self-centered, they're really driven to pray for things that are just totally about themselves, not really recognizing God. And there's this one key verse in chapter 7, verse 14, where the Lord is saying through Hosea to the congregation, they do not cry out to God from their hearts, but they wail upon their beds. 
They do not cry out to the Lord from their hearts, but they wail upon their beds. The people are in bed. They're moaning in pain as a result of their poor choices. Yet even in their pain, they're not crying out for their, from their heart. They don't repent. Instead, they're like a two-year-old wailing on their bed saying, God, fix this pain. God, fix this situation. But don't worry about fixing me. I don't know if you've ever had that kind of prayer. I'm not really the problem here. The problem is this situation or the problem this is pain. And I need you like a butler to come down here and just sort of clean all this stuff up. God, you serve me. They don't see their self-centeredness even in their, their prayers. Their prayers are superficial. Well, this kind of prayer is the very opposite of the kind of prayer we see from the Apostle Paul here for his congregation. This uh, great apostle's locked in a Roman prison cell. He's writing this letter to this newly planted church, and he's, he's writing and struggling. He's contending. He's wrestling in prayer from his heart. And he's struggling and contending and wrestling in prayer for the hearts of this congregation. And so my question last week as we saw Paul, Paul contending or struggling or wrestling, depending on what your translation says. My question is, what's the intention of Paul's contention? He's contending for something. He's wrestling for something. What, what is his goal? What does he want to see happen at the end of this wrestling match in prayer? And we have basically a list. We looked at half of it last week from verses 1 through 5. And this was the list that their hearts would be encouraged. They would be knit together in love. They would reach all the riches of the fullness of assurance of understanding. They wouldn't be deluded by plausible or fine-sounding arguments and they would be in good order and firm in their faith. And then this week we have verses 6 through 8. Here's this second half of the list. Walk in him, rooted and built up, established in the faith, abounding in thanksgiving, not taken captive. So you might think of this as Paul's top ten list. You know, you always get to the end of the year and it's uh, the top 10 something of 2014. Here's here's the top 10 list, maybe, for Paul's prayer life. The things that he's saying, these are the 10 things that are on my list. I'm contending for this congregation for these 10 things. And as I did last week, I want to, again, provide two ways for you to engage with Paul's list. First, if you're in any kind of spiritual leadership, you're a parent, you're an elder, you're a Sunday school teacher, you're a mentor, you're a community group leader, you're whatever situation you may find yourself in, and you're, you're leading someone in some way, I think that you can look at this top ten list and see that it Paul provides an excellent list of goals for you. And over the holidays, you can maybe think, okay, I'm in this position as a dad. I'm in a position as a, as a mom. I'm in a position just with one person as a mentor. Whatever the position may be. And let me look at this list and see, are these my goals for the people that I'm, I'm leading? Maybe you might just want to ask, what are my goals? And then ask, what, what am I doing with these ten things that the Apostle Paul is giving us here from the book of Colossians? And secondly, for everybody here who's a follower of Christ, which one of these intentions 
needs to be strengthened in your life. If you said, hey, if I could get somebody to pray over me for one of these things, what would be that thing for you? And we'll look at these second five here this morning. First of all, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, verse 6. And and let me begin by maybe just pointing out the obvious, and that is receiving Christ is not the end of, but the beginning of life. I mean, it's, it's obvious. He's saying just as you received him, so walk in him. And so maybe it's just so obvious you don't see it or you, don't, you wouldn't say it. But it, when you're receiving Christ, that's, that's not the end of your life. That's the very beginning of your life. And the reason I say that is for personal reasons is that's because when I grew up, what I thought about, so I grew up in the church, I grew up thinking that all that mattered was just getting in and not growing up. Somehow, in my immature, foolish thinking, I'm not blaming my church. I'm just hearing and I'm thinking, hey, all you need is you need to get the stamp to get in. And once you're in, then growing up was just, okay, I don't don't know anything about that. I just move on. And so in some ways... This foolish thinking led me to think of Christianity or my salvation something like a life insurance policy. You walk down the aisle, you say the sinner's prayer, you get baptized, you get a stamp, you're in. You sign the policy. And just like a life insurance policy, when you get your life insurance policy, then you get it, you sign a bunch of papers, and then what do you do with that life insurance policy? You put it in a file, you put it in a safe, You don't intend to look at it ever again. You only plan to access this life insurance policy, and you're not actually going to access it one more time. And from whatever time you get your first life insurance policy to whatever time you die, it just sits safely in a safe. And that's how I thought about Christianity or salvation. I came down the aisle, said the sinner's prayer, got baptized, got my stamp, got I'm in. Sign the policy. And when I die, I'm going to pull that policy back out. So all that mattered to me was just getting in, not growing. And the Apostle Paul is saying, just as you receive Christ, that's awesome. Now walk in him. That's just as awesome. The the getting in and the growing are, are together. And he's trying to make sure that this congregation in Colossae doesn't make the same foolish Idea, I don't have the same foolish ideas that I had as I was growing up. So the Apostle Paul is, is trying to say, just, just as you receive Christ, just as you acknowledge that Jesus, chapter 1, verse 15, that he is the image of the invisible God, that he created all things, that Jesus is before all things, and in him all things that hold together. Just as you receive Jesus at the center of the universe, now make him the center of your life. If he is the center of the universe, if he is holding all things together, if he is the visible image of the invisible God, then then by all means, make him the center of your life. Don't put him in a safe and just think you're going to access him some later time in your life. And then Paul uses this familiar imagery, biblical imagery, and he's used it already in this book. Walk in him. For the Apostle Paul, he always understands that information leads to transformation. Doctrine always dictates duty. Belief always leads to a certain kind of behavior. 
And so he says, walk in him. In chapter 1, verse 10, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Fully pleasing him, meaning every area of your life. A fairly common lie that we tell ourselves as we're walking with the Lord is that it's okay if it's not fully pleasing. And the conversation goes something like this. Man, I sure have grown and I'm doing a lot better here and a lot better here and a lot better here. But, you know, I got this one thing. And because I'm doing a lot better here, I mean, in these other areas, it really doesn't matter that I'm not doing well in this one area. And it's like you can isolate the contamination. Like you can just kind of put it on the side and say, well, I mean, he understands I'm not perfect and I just don't have to worry about this one area. I'm basically getting a 90. So, I mean, who really cares? And somehow we have this lie in our mind that that's okay. And the Apostle Paul is understanding that you're always going to be growing. You're never going to be perfect. But he's saying every single area. Fully pleasing. There's no area that's that's left untouched by this searching light of Jesus Christ. And and let's make movement. Let's make progress in that area. We're not looking for perfection. We're looking for progress. And so often we want to just give ourselves a break and say, it's okay that I have this one little idol over here. And it's not okay. So the Apostle Paul is saying, walk in a manner Worthy in every area of your life, no matter where somebody might intersect you, his prayer, his contention is that whether you intersected this new Christian at church, at work, at home, by himself or in a group, you get the same person every time. He's always walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Second thing in this list of five for this week, he's praying that they would be rooted and built up. And Paul is, I just love his teaching style. You get it as you sort of immerse yourself in the book. He's just basically going to say the same thing again using different imagery. Just like a good teacher would would say, okay, look, I'm going to give this list, and I know that somewhere in this list somebody's going to zone out. As dynamic a preacher as I am, somebody's going to nod off. I've got my ten points, I've got my PowerPoint, and maybe you missed receiving and walking. And so let me give another illustration. How about rooted and built up? And somehow he comes back around. He's circling back around to say, in case you didn't get it, let me use another image. We're, we're, we, I'm praying, I'm contending that you would be rooted and built up. Now, it's a bit technical, but it's important that we look at this word rooted. And you can't really see it here in the English text, but the word has a certain tense to it. If you're a, an English geek, it's the perfect passive participle. If you're not an English geek, I'm not going to explain it to you. But the perfect passive participle, the, the word rooted, really means once and for all having been rooted. So he's making a declaration He's saying, you have once and for all, you've been rooted. 
Now grow up. Something has happened in the past that's definite. It can't be changed. And because of that, now I want you to move forward. And, and it's so important because Paul is not praying that you and I would work on being rooted. He's assuming we've been rooted. And this is, this is glorious news. In chapter 1, verse 13, this is what Paul says. He has... Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And this is great news. He has, he has, he has pulled me out of the darkness and he has planted me in a new place. He has done it. And aren't you so glad you don't have to work about and worry about you being rooted He has rooted you. We're not depending on our own works. We're not depending on our own goodness. We are depending on the goodness and the work of Jesus Christ that once and for all has permanently planted you. It can never change. Amen. Once you understand that, once you have that buried in your heart and you know that can never change you, you can never change the unconditional, always forward moving love of God. When you grasp that, then you can start growing up. But so often, people work on trying to stay rooted. That's not your role. That's God's role. He's taking care of being rooted. Now, what you can contribute to is grow up. Now that you know God has done something on your behalf, He has paid it all, now grow up. Be built up. Increase. And that is something that you and I can work on. Be strengthened in your wisdom. Grow in your understanding. Increase in your knowledge of God. And this term built up is, is it's a present ongoing tense. It's something you work on now. It's something that's immediate. And you always work on it. You don't grow up and say, I'm mature. You're always working on that part. So you have been rooted. Now grow up. Be built up, increase in your wisdom and knowledge. The third thing he mentions, just piggybacks on that, be established in your faith. Continually increase in your wisdom, continually increase in your understanding, continually increase in your knowledge so that that you would be stable. Your wisdom would create a stability. Your, Your excitement for the Lord would be built up with this great stable base that you would be established in your faith that you would trust your faith more and more as you grow older and you grow more mature in him what a what a great list is it not especially if you're in any kind of spiritual leadership what a great list to have to pray for people that you're leading and i hope you understand or maybe i hope you feel The urgency of Paul's prayer for maturity in chapter one, verse 28 in chapter four, verse 12, he says, mature. I'm trying to get people mature. There's an urgency about it. There's an immediacy about it. This this is a new church. And he's saying, "Okay, awesome. I'm so glad Epaphras, who I evangelized, came back to his hometown in Colossae. I'm so glad he spread the gospel to you. I'm so glad you're a newly found church. But you got to mature. You got to quickly start growing up. And there's an urgency to his request. 
And my question is, why, why the urgency? Why the contending? Why the, the wrestling? I'm wrestling for something. I'm using all of my energy so that you might mature. Why is Paul so urgent? And the answer is in the text here. Paul understands the nearness of the spiritual quicksand. Not only for this church, but for every believer. Oh, you're just so close to spiritual quicksand. And if you're, if you're not being built up, if you're not growing in your wisdom, you can just quickly get sucked down by this spiritual quicksand. Chapter 2, verse 4, you must be built up so that no one will delude you. Chapter 2, verse 18, you must be built up so that no one will disqualify you. You must be built up. You must mature. Chapter 2, verse 8, so that no one takes you captive. See, if you, like me, when I was younger, you treat Christianity or you treat salvation like an insurance policy, that that you receive Christ and you put him away, you're going to be an easy target for spiritual quicksand. Because you haven't grown, you haven't matured, you haven't increased in knowledge, and, and people and events happen that intersect you, and you just get sucked down and sucked away from Christ. And so Paul's saying, I don't want you to be easily deluded, disqualified, or taken captive. Now let's look at this fourth thing, taken captive. It's a very graphic term. It's a slave trader term. Paul understood this. Slave trade was rampant in this area. And they all understood what does it mean to be a slave, what it means to have a slave, who is a slave trader. And he's saying, don't let anybody come in and take you captive. You're in this church, and by the grace of God, you live by freedom. Don't let somebody in with some other religious idea and come and put you back in chains. You've just gotten free by the grace of God. And all these religious hucksters are coming back in, trying to chain you back in some way. Don't be kidnapped, it says, by empty philosophy or human traditions. Don't be kidnapped by an empty philosophy. Don't be kidnapped. Don't be enchained by somebody's human tradition. Well, that's great that you have Christ, but did you make sure you got these ten things down? Hmm. When you hear that, you hear the rattling of chains. Somebody's just about ready to chain you down. You're not going to live in grace. You're not going to grow in grace. You can easily get into a conversation. I've been into many of these where someone says something like this. No religion can say it's the one true religion. I mean, that's kind of arrogant. Somebody to claim that they know everything. They have a corner on the truth. Maybe at best, each world religion has a piece of the whole. But, you know, nobody can have the entire truth. Nobody can know the whole truth. Pretty common conversation. And they may not use this illustration, but this illustration sometimes accompany Companies that kind of thought, and many of you have probably heard the illustration. They'll say it's kind of like blind men, five blind men who sort of stumble upon an elephant. And they, they can't see the elephant, but they bump into the elephant. And all the five blind men, they each grab a different part of the elephant. 
And then somebody says, well, you found an elephant. Tell me what the elephant's like. But somebody's got the tail. Oh, the elephant's like this, you know, skinny whip. And somebody says, skinny whip? I got the foot. You know, I got the, the, the leg. It's not like a skinny whip. It's like a tree trunk. Somebody else leaning up against the side of it. And that's a tree trunk. It's like a wall. Somebody else got the trunk. It's like a big hose. See, religions like that. I mean, you, you might have a piece of the truth, but you don't have the availability or the capacity to see the whole truth. And so no religion should say that they see the whole thing. At best, they only have a little part. And you hear that, you're not growing, you're not increasing in your knowledge, and you go, boy, that sounds like a fine-sounding argument. Leslie Newbegin, a famous well-known missionary scholar, he points out because he traveled in circles that had this conversation pretty frequently, and this is what he points out about that. In the famous story of the blind man and the elephant, the real point is often overlooked. The story can't be told unless there's someone who's not blind but can see what the blind man cannot fully grasp, which is the whole elephant. The story is told to neutralize the truth claims of the great world religions and suggest that they should learn humility and recognize that no one can know the whole truth. But the story is told by someone who claims to see and know the whole truth themselves. Otherwise, you wouldn't know the men were blind. You see, see what Newbegin is saying. The only way you can know that their men are blind is if you say you're not blind and I can see what everybody else can't see. And you, you're claiming then something you don't want anyone else to claim. That, that they can't uniquely see the whole thing, but because you can, you can uniquely say that they can't see the whole thing. And so who's arrogant? He goes on to say, there's an appearance of humility in the claim. No one can know the whole truth. But if it's used to invalidate all truth claims, then it is, in fact, an arrogant claim to the very kind of knowledge they are claiming no one else can have. If you say, I don't know which religion is true, that can be a humble statement. But if you say no one can know which religion is true, then you are claiming to have a far better grasp of reality than any other religion and that is the very claim you are criticizing. Now, it, may it may take time to think about that, but that's a very common intersection with people. And if you're not growing, if your relationship with Christ is an insurance policy that's in a safe, and you get out into a conversation like this, you're easily in spiritual quicksand. So Paul understands that. So there's an urgency. He knows that that if they don't build up their knowledge, they're going to fall into this spiritual quicksand of empty philosophy where you can easily be left believing. The only thing you can be sure about is that you can't be sure about anything. What an empty philosophy that the only thing now you're left with is that you can't know anything for sure. That's emptiness. That's the kind of thing Paul is trying to say. You've got to grow in. Finally, our fifth thing, abounding in thanksgiving. Number 10 in Paul's list. One, one commentator says this. 
profuse thanksgiving is the unfailing mark of a healthy spiritual life. Profuse thanksgiving is a healthy mark, is an unfailing mark of a healthy spiritual life. Paul knows if you've been that if you've been personally and permanently marked by the mercies of God, if you're personally aware of the mercies of God, if you know that his mercies are new every morning and that, you know, you need those mercies every morning, then you are going to be marked by the mercy of God and you are going to be a person overflowing or abounding in thanksgiving. And you see it in Paul's letters. It's very easy to see if you just see the beginning of all of his letters. Romans chapter one, verse eight. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you. First thing I want to do, I just want to be thankful. I'm having an attitude of gratitude. I'm I'm overflowing in thanksgiving for you. Ephesians chapter one, 15. Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, I've not stopped giving thanks for you. I'm a, I'm a fire hydrant that's always wide open with thanksgiving. Colossians, we even st- study this ourselves, chapter 1, verse 3. We are always thanking God for you. Paul's the kind of person who's searching for evidences of grace. And he, he just can't wait to be thankful for that evidence. He's, he's eagerly trying to fan that evidence of grace into thanksgiving. And and if you were a Christian in one of these early churches and you intersected the Apostle Paul for any length of time, you it wouldn't be long until you felt the full force of his thanksgiving for you. That's the kind of person Paul was. He's just searching for something to say. I see the evidence of God's grace in your life. And I'm so thankful to God for that. I'm so thankful for you in that. I'm trying to fan that into flame. That's the kind of personality he had. What an incredible character trait for a leader for any christian that your first step was just trying to find any evidence of grace any way to be thankful a very funny charles schultz uh, charlie brown cartoon most of you remember charlie brown do you not christmas time you know that Christmas cartoon in one of these little lines Linus remember Linus he's uh, the younger brother to Lucy he's curled up in his chair he's got his blanket he's reading and Lucy's standing behind him Lucy a little sharp a little sour she looks at him and says it's very strange it happens just by looking at you. Next frame, Linus. What happens? Lucy. I can feel. I can feel a criticism coming on. <laughs> See, Lucy's first step. When I intersect with you. A strange feeling comes on. I can feel, I can feel a criticism. That's not the Apostle Paul. He, he knows 
These churches aren't perfect. He senses the urgency of the spiritual quicksand, but he's abounding in thanksgiving. His first step is I'm, I'm trying to find some places, some evidence of the grace of God, and I'm trying to first fan that into flame with thanksgiving. And I wonder if, if you're married, because of you, is your spouse more aware or evident of God's grace in their lives Or do they regularly feel a criticism coming on? If you're a parent, what kind of environment have you established in your home? Are you just, I know you've got to give instruction, but is your first step to say, I see some evidence of grace. I'm trying to first fan that into flame or, or when they come home or when they're around, is it, is my first step a, a critical spirit? Or if you're a, a member of Christ's community church, what, when you think about the church, when you think about the programs, when you intersect other people, do you just feel a criticism coming on? Or is your first step to just try to find some evidence of grace and, and fan that into flame? Paul's intention for his contention. His second five in this top ten list. Walk in him. Be rooted and built up. Be established in your faith. Abounding in thanksgiving. Not taken captive. So my question for you. Last week and this week is the same. Here's Paul's top ten. This is the things he's praying for. For his church. His family. If you're in some kind of spiritual leadership role, what are the things that you're praying for, for your person, your family, your group? If you're a Christian here, what are the things that you need to be built up in in some way? What would be something you would put on your prayer card? I I feel a criticism coming on. My prayer for 2015 is that I would have that first step in Thanksgiving. I need to increase in my knowledge because I I get swamped in this spiritual quicksand of arguments. And I'm always being drugged down. It's really because I haven't grown. I've just used my faith as something like a life insurance policy. I'm just only planning on accessing it at the very end of my life. Whatever that may be, my Prayer for you is that you take these things home. Wrestle with them with the Lord. Let's wrestle together. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are eternally thankful for your grace and your mercies that they are new every morning. We're aware first that we need your mercies. Not not primarily. I'm so glad your mercies are available for that person. Help us to have a deep sense of a need for your mercy. And then that would cause us to to move out with a more thankful spirit. A greater need to grow. Pray for anyone here who's been taken captive. Some philosophy, some tradition... Just cut them off from you. And it's a fine sounding argument, but it's empty. May they see, seek 
come to the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.